Good morning this morning. Uh, let's take our Bibles today. We're going to start off turning to Luke. I'm going to be in several passages uh, this morning. And I know that this is our uh, 4th of July weekend. And I thought I would do something a little bit different uh, and just trace out from the Word of God uh, in different places about uh, what the Word of God says about, I guess, the groundwork where revival would come. And um, what's amazing in God's sovereignty is that in 1776, we, our nation became what we call independent. We celebrate that. Uh, but before that, uh, before when the Civil War happened later, uh, God allowed a great revival to take place. And many of the young men who died in the Civil War uh, were men who really came out of that revival. Many, many of those men became believers before they died. Uh, you can see God's sovereignty in the whole thing. In fact, one of my professors, uh, Dr. John Woodbridge, was challenging some people to write a dissertation on that, on, on the revival that came prior to the Civil War where many of those young men came to Christ. And then, of course, they died. God sovereignly working in our nation uh, to establish a good foundation of the gospel before the war happened. So the Great Awakening was a dramatic revival that began in the middle of the 18th century, around 1735. And it swept through the colonies uh, before it settled down. Uh, multitudes were converted in the awakening. And the spiritual climate of uh, colonial America was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, amazingly, signs of revival first appeared, believe it or not, in New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey is where the revival came first. Uh, among the Dutch Reformed congregations in 1726, the Great Awakening was actually a series of revivals in the American colonies between 1725 and 1760. Before I go any further, let's pray. Lord, this morning I do ask you you would enable us to understand some of the groundwork that you laid and why you laid it, um, not only for our own country, Lord, but for any group of people that gets to the place where they become spiritually numb and they need God to do something new and revive their hearts. Lord, help us to see some of that today as I look at these uh, the history and, and some passages, and then I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to appreciate uh, your sovereignty more in doing things and preparing things even before certain disasters take place. And Lord, we'll praise you for allowing us to be born here, allowing us to be part of this great nation, and Lord, especially, Lord, allowing those who know you to be part of your family because of what Christ accomplished and finished on the cross of Calvary, who, and, and, we, and we know, Lord, he fought the greatest battle and won the greatest victory, and we thank you for it, and I pray, uh, pray this in Christ's name, amen. amen. So, uh, before we look at the scriptures, it, it began, this revival began in two locations at the same time, in New Jersey, central Jersey, right here, right smack in Raritan Valley, uh, if anybody has anything to do with Rutgers University, uh, if you go down to New Brunswick, you'll see streets like Freeling Heisen Street and Tennant Street. Well, all these men uh, were actually part of what took place, that Freeling Heisen and Gilbert Tennant stirred the faithful in the Dutch Reformed Church with their fervent preaching that experienced a really a fresh influx of genuine real converts. In the north, uh, on the east, Jonathan Edwards witnessed uh, the same phenomena as a result of his fiery call for repentance. And these two regional revivals were linked through the efforts of one man 
with whom the Great Awakening is indelibly associated, and that is George Whitfield. Uh, in the South, Presbyterians experienced revival through the reading houses of Samuel Davies, while revivals were brought to, to the Methodists through the preaching of uh, a, a man named Pastor Jarrett, to the Baptists through the work of Daniel Marshall and Shubal Stern. So all the denominations... Uh, were being affected by the revival prior to all the civil war that was going to take place years later. Matter of fact, it's 50, 60 years before it even took place. So Jonathan Edwards probably had a better perspective on what awakening and revival and spiritual renewal really was because he was there from the start of it to the end of it. And Jonathan Edwards actually began to see remarkable increase in the number of conversions in his own congregation up in the north uh, on the east coast. And at, this, at the time, he didn't know actually what was going on, that the conversions he was witnessing in his own congregations were the first stirrings of the greatest revival in American history, the Great Awakening. And from this movement, Terms like awakening, revival, and spiritual renewal, and others began to arise to the surface. So Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the greatest theologians, some have said, uh, greatest theological minds that our country ever knew. If you ever read his works, uh, they're quite astounding and um, amazing and biblical. And so what happened is that he uh, experienced this revival and the movement of the Holy Spirit. So he watched it f uh, firsthand from beginning to the end. And he pers personally witnessed the emotional and the physical responses in his congregation where he preached and even to other congregations where he was preaching. And uh, even through the movement, the, even though the movement did not uh, come to full fruition until 1940s, it was stirring and caught the attention of Edwards and moved him to publish his first work on revival in 1736 called The Narrative of Surprising Conversions. All right, so awakening for Edwards was not conversion. It was when the Word of God made an immediate impression upon the soul of a person concerning who God was concerning Christ and what he did on the cross, concerning heaven and hell. When someone is awakened like that by the Spirit of God. So, in other words, an awakening was that a person was awakened to their responsibility before the God who was their creator and their eternal destiny. They began to feel the conviction of where they're going to go when they die. Where they're going to stand before God when they die. But... It fell short of conversion. Awakening wasn't conversion. He believed, Jonathan Edwards, if the awakened sinner did not come all the way over and trust in Christ and become a repentant disciple, they may falsely think they were converted. It was recorded of Edwards that he said he was cut to the quick when he remembered the variety of false experiences the hypocrisies and the degenerations which accompanied the awakening. Uh, so his, in his understanding of the awakening, it came from an examination of the Spirit of God's work in conversion. But he said that is the first part of what the Spirit of God was doing. He was awakening people to the spiritual reality. That's short of conversion. But then it led to trying to define revival. And so for Edwards, uh, his understanding of revival was that it was an event uh, itself that contained a miraculous element. When he began to evaluate the nature of revival, he observed that there are times in which the Spirit of God is given in an exceptional measure, which, uh, w and of course with great speed and swiftness in which Sudden conversions of Christ happen. In other words, some called it an infusion of the Spirit. But nonetheless, these words were used to uh, talk about a revival in religion. It was not 
that something new was happening, Edwards said, but that God was heightening normal Christianities to a place that spiritual influence is more widespread, conviction of sin was deeper, and the feelings of affections towards God were more intense. So he said that the spirit of people were made alive and brought into a saving relationship with God. So they were awakened. That caused them to think about their eternal destiny, which revived the churches, and then it brought, was, they were brought to a place of spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal, as I was reading these things, in my understanding, is when the, when the awakening led to gen, genuine uh, revival. In other words, people were immediately converted to Christ and experienced dramatically changed lives that ultimately ended up and leading to spiritual renewal in the churches. So the churches uh, became alive. So all this Raritan Valley, all the way up north, all the way down south where, where Whitfield was and where everything was being revived on the East Coast. Of course, remember, there was not much more than the East Coast at that time. Nobody began to move west yet. So it was all populated north and south here. And so the revival came here into New Jersey. And these men were all part of bringing the gospel here, laying the foundations of the gospel. Now, what were the, fact, what, what were the factors that caused the awakening and caused a revival and a spiritual renewal? Well, well, Edwards was thankful to God for having the opportunity to be part of what God was doing among his flock and and after things settled down uh, and got back to normalcy, he decided to scrutinize the whole event that took place by the hand of God. And Edwards, once he examined everything with his incredible mind and incredible theological understanding, uh, he came up with several factors that were uh, evident among the people who were awakened and then convert it and then spiritual renewal that came into the churches and he said the first thing that happened almost across the board was there is there was an awakened consciousness which plunged in upon a person with gloom and fear uh, of their eternal destiny uh, he said that it realized the person realized that there was an awful danger impending upon their soul and so its whole energies uh, of the, the whole energies of the person were strained, as he puts it, and bent to escape from the wrath of God. In other words, when you feel that 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 impending doom upon your soul, or where you're going to stand uh, someday uh, before God, and whether you're going to be in heaven or hell, then you begin to ask, "Well, how can I be delivered from this wrath?" And that's what, what people were asking. And so he says, then once that happened, of course, that's con deep conviction of sin, right? Once that happened, then he saw that troubled soul wanted to learn more about the sovereignty of God. Uh, they wanted to leave things implicitly in the hands of God. They began to realize they cannot save themselves. And so they confessed their need, and they began to meditate upon the person of Christ, their need for Christ. And he says that thirdly led to... Uh, clearing up some confusions in their mind by using scripture and of course their strivings and their humblings they were led to as he says the happy harbor of salvation uh, the storm changed into a calm at god's command and will so see everywhere genuine revival found itself it was accompanied by, Edward said, strong preaching from the Word of God, a recovery of healthy doctrine, a distinct emphasis on justification by faith, a potent, uh, a potent conviction of sin, and, and abrupt conversions, and then ultimately sanctification, radically changed lives. People who wanted to live for Christ, that's what they wanted to do.
Now, no one at this time could deny that God was moving in an unusual way during a changing time among the settlers of the new colonies. However, before this took place, before this great awakening happened, God was moving upon several men to help transform colonial America. And one man stands out, heads and shoulders, upon all the rest. And this one man was called the forerunner of the Great Awakening. And his name was Theodore Frelinghuysen. He was a Dutch Reformed minister in Raritan, New Jersey. Whitfield, John Whitfield, said of him, referred to him as the beginner of the great work. Now, that's a credible compliment by someone like John Whitfield, in, if you study your history. Uh, so this first great awakening came unexpectedly by God's mercy on sinful people and in the context of God-centered doctrinal proclamations from spirit-empowered preachers like Frelinghuysen, Tennant, uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, these, uh, their messages centered on the holiness of God, condemnation of sin, justification by faith, and of course the new birth for, uh, that, produced, was, that was produced solely by the power of God and not by the instrumentality of human efforts, but by the instru instrumentality of the word of God. It was uh, in a profound way, Biblical theology produced genuine revival. It can't be done without it. Robert Owen, I mean, uh, Richard Owen Roberts, he was a historian, said that Frelinghuysen's ministry must be considered one of the major forerunners of the Great Awakening. The thought of Frelinghuysen as a forerunner is an appropriate one, but the term alone without a context sheds little light on the Great, Great Awakening, the term comes into focus, clear focus, when it, uh, it's first run through the grid of Scripture and applied then, of course, to anyone's ministry, especially this man's. And so there's two places in the Bible that mentions the word forerunner. I'd like you to turn there. Luke chapter 1, verse number 17 is the first one. And of course, um, if you know this part of the Bible, this, this verse is talking about John the Baptist. All right, and it says in verse number 17 of Luke chapter 1, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready the people, a people prepared for the Lord. So you see there in that passage of Scripture, that John the Baptist had a very unique ministry that was actually prophesied by Malachi that he was going to raise up someone who would lay the groundwork for the Messiah. So John the Baptist, of course, was the one who was going to do that. And then, if you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 20, these are the only two places forerunner is used in Scripture and this one, of course, is Jesus Christ himself, where it says in Hebrews 6.20, it says where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus Christ, again, blazes a trail. And that's another way we can define forerunner, someone who blazes a trail for others so they can follow in. Remember, Jesus Christ is the one who leads us to God, all right? brings us to God, actually, what it says. And John the Baptist is the one who points us to the Lamb of God. So these two scriptures that use this word are significant because it seems like this word can be applied to uh, a group of people um, by someone who is called for a particular group of people to lay the foundation for what is to come. So there are several meanings to uh, this particular word. It could be one who was sent before to take observation. It may, could mean to act as a spy or a scout or a light-armored soldier 
or it could mean one who comes in advance to a place where the rest are to follow. That's probably the way it is used here. Matter of fact, that is the way it's used here. Uh, Marines would call this person the point man. You know, the point man is is one of the most dangerous positions in a uh, platoon. The point man goes in front of everybody, usually so so far out that the rest of the platoon don't see him, and he, he... sends back reconnaissance saying, okay, the enemy's here, the enemy's doing that, or I don't see anything, or, or there's mines here, and uh, whatever he's got to bring back. So uh, the, the point man's a dangerous position, and usually uh, he leads his platoon into new and often hostile situations and hostile territories. It's, it's new ground that's being laid. So he relays back to the troops the needed information for them to advance forward. So then it could be said that Along with John the Baptist, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord, and then Frelinghuysen, who came to here to New Jersey to lay a foundation for others to build upon, and the rest were to follow. And that's exactly what happened. So according to John the Baptist himself, uh, who was the only actually forerunner of the Messiah, and he had come to prepare the way and to point people in the right direction. Now, that's, that's very important because people were, they thought they were doing the right thing when John the Baptist came on the scene, but they were not going in the right way. In fact, the very heart of John the Baptist's message was preparation for the Messiah, all right? And of course, the Messiah would be the one who would deliver someone from their sins, And so he was laying the groundwork for that. So most of John the Baptist's preparation work was preaching. They came to hear John preach. A strange guy he was, and uh, which was part of the attraction, I think. I got to go hear this guy that you know eats strange, has a strange diet, wears strange clothing, and all the and has a uh, unusual, powerful message. I had to go hear this guy preach. And, and so, of course, that was the whole point. And he was the forerunner uh, speaking. But the only problem, the only difference would, uh, well, there was really no difference, but John the Baptist really wasn't speaking a new message. John the Baptist was speaking something that was previously spoken before. In other words, John's message was not new. It was as old as the prophets. John's message was an ignored message. It was a forgotten message. He was on the scene, as some would say, the old, the last Old Testament prophet to preach what was long forgotten and unheeded. Now, when consider, considering really the similarities between John's ministry and Frelinghuysen's ministry, only then does the term forerunner bleed through and take on significance. Examining the similarities does enable one to understand to what extent uh, Frelinghuysen's ministry may be viewed as a significant forerunner of the Great Awakening. Now, in looking at all the forerunners, John the Baptist, the Lord himself, and then Frelinghuysen or anyone else who would be a forerunner, uh, there are three common denominators that can be identified uh, when someone is raised up to be a forerunner. And uh, these common denominators really show where the people themselves are at. And that's what I want to just look at uh, at this point, because I'm not going, this is going to be part one of a message Uh, And the first thing is this, that forerunners proclaim their message to a people steeped in the religious currents of their day. They preach their message to a people steeped in the religious currents of their day. All right? They preach, in other words, to a society deadened and shallow, to a people who were indifferent and lackadaisical about spiritual matters, and a people affected by all kinds of subtle forms of hypocrisy. A brief search of the scripture and the religious context there 
uh, found therein and really exposes the current spiritual condition of the times of which uh, any these forerunners ministered. And of course, the first one, if we look at, uh, again, the Lord himself and then John the Baptist, if you turn to Matthew chapter 3, uh, turn back to Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist had some harsh words uh, to say to the religious establishment of his day. In fact, in verse number 5 of chapter 3, this would be in his messages that he preached. Imagine being in the audience when he preached this message. And uh, it says there in verse number 5 of chapter 3 of Matthew, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fires. So see, he was definitely, his message uh, was to the religious establishment that was steeped in what I would call religious formality. They were steeped in religious formality. And religious for formalists are deeply concerned about ex external law how things look on the outside, but they don't examine the inside, the heart, what's going on there, all right? Th there cannot be genuine revival anywhere unless we look at the heart and what's going on inside the person. So uh, formalists, they usually do not neglect their religious duty. They were religious, but they had no heart. They did not come before the Lord to express feelings of repentance or deep sense of sin or gratitude or love coupled with a heart of obedience, submission, and devotion to God. They, they forget that the meaning of the act uh, and spirit in which it is done is of utmost importance to the Lord, and they just kind of go through the motions. And so, again, in Matthew if you look at verse, the end of Matthew, chapter 23, we have another indictment against this group of people, right, that exposes, again, this inside-outside language. And if you notice in Matthew 23, in verse 27, he says, it's being said of, of the establishment, uh, actually, this is Jesus' view, of the religious establishment of his day, and he doesn't have anything pretty to say about them. He says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So again, we see this group of people that John the Baptist, being the forerunner, comes on the scene. Jesus Christ being the forerunner also of laying down what salvation would really be and how a person can really, truly be saved. They come to a group of people who were steeped in this religious formality they were going through the motions all right so that means the spiritual condition uh the next spiritual condition that follows closely on the heels of the first and usually goes together is comfortable hypocrisy all right they were comfortable in their religion and anybody anybody whoever they are who's comfortable in their religion usually never looks at their own heart. Uh, they always look at what they are doing. Well, I'm going to church. 
I'm doing the things that I think pleases God. And, and see, that, that really turns very quickly into very comfortable hypocrisy. You're actually, you know, massaging yourself into saying, I'm all right, without looking at the real truth that's going on in your heart. So from the Luke passage of Scripture, remember, the message that John the Baptist preached was not new. It came from Malachi. Uh, and if I just go back, uh, you don't need to turn there, but the Luke 17 passage of Scripture, I want to remind you what it says, that the forerunner, John the Baptist, this is what his job was, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteous, the righteous, and to make ready people prepared for the Lord. That's what he was to do. And where did that come from? That came right from Malachi, where it says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming great day of the terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So I said already that the message was as old as the prophets. Well, to establish that, Let's go back to Malachi. All right, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew, right? Tremendous book of the Bible. It is actually the last word of the prophets. If you want to know what the last book of the uh, Old Testament is, it is Malachi, right? It's the last word of the prophets before God does not speak through a prophet for 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years some people say of silence, they still had the scripture. Uh, they still had the teaching of the word of God, but God wasn't speaking through a prophet until John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the, the one who's between when God stops speaking through a prophet to when he speaks again through John the Baptist, who of course would be considered a prophet also. All right. So here is the last word in Malachi of the prophets. Now, Malachi reveals the spirit con spiritual condition of the people at the time. Some historical background, of course, helps to bring the message of Malachi into focus. A decree from Cyrus comes to rebuild the temple. Remember, the temple was destroyed. Uh, a decree comes to rebuild the temple. They begin building the temple for 15 years, and then they stopped it. All right, then again, in the second year of Darius, Haggai, and Zechariah come and they begin to build the temple again. Well, uh, the temple gets finished. The people are now going to the temple. They're offering the sacrifices like in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, they're following the law. And so here in Malachi, here in Malachi, they are finished with the temple. And it's been about 75 to 100 years that they've been finished. The priests have been ministering and the people have been worshiping in the temple. So when Malachi wrote his prophecy, there was no pressure on the people. There was no war or invasion. There was no crisis. Now this, this will uh, sound strange, but as I was looking back at uh, Malachi many years ago, it was kind of like a non-crisis crisis see the crisis was nothing was going on and that's that's very dangerous uh when you just are going through the motions that's very dangerous because really what it does it produces hypocrisy there's no wall to be built there's no temple to be built there's nothing to be done all that there is to do is carry on the work of god now that's a good thing that's what the people ought to do, but it could and often becomes very deadly, especially if it's not accompanied by inner heart examination. All of us from time to time, we come to the Lord's table, and the Lord's table, actually there's a command to examine ourselves. Why? What's going on in your heart? Are you inflamed in your heart in your love for Christ? Are your affections for the Lord growing and expanding? Or are they are just walking around in hypocrisy? The Lord does not like hypocrisy. He hates it. 
And so, you know what? The whole prophet of Malachi is about examining hypocrisy. That's why when John the Baptist comes and preaches, what does he preach? You hypocrites. When Jesus preaches, what does he preach? You hypocrites. Because they're saying exactly what Malachi said. They're just carrying on the message. Because the people, after all those years, still are going through the motions. And you know what happens? They got cold and numb. So, in Malachi, if you notice in chapter 1, the people are spiritually comfortable and the Lord reveals that he is not pleased with them. Look what it says in Malachi 1.10. It says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. In other words, he was saying, listen, it's better for someone to close the gates of the temple than for you to come worship me without your heart being engaged. He says, I am not pleased with your hypocrisy. I am not pleased with that at all. So you see, their hearts were cold and numb, though they were unaware of their condition. And I want you to notice how these passages reveal their numbness. And what this, this is what the Lord does. He really reveals six things. He sees in the heart that has gone wrong, because they're not looking at the heart. They're looking at the externals. And so that is that the people have become hypocritical and pharisaical, and usually when that happens, there are certain things that show up in your heart. And here's the first one. If you look at, and really, if you look at this passage of Scripture, the wonder how God gets at it. Uh, he doesn't just hit the outside of the shell. He actually pierces right deep into the recesses of the heart. And he cracks the shell. And by an indirect address, with, which includes an, uh, a bold statement, he provokes the people. He provokes them to action. He, he wants a reaction from them. And so then he hits the problem right in their heart. And, and you know that when people, when people's hearts are cold and numb, they need a forerunner to lay the work, groundwork for re genuine revival. That's not only in Friedlingheisen times and John the Baptist times and, and when the Lord was the forerunner. That's in our day too, right? Because sometimes we do slip into just go, going through the motions. Oh, this is what I do, you know? And then, but there's no engagement of the heart. There's no passion for serving God. There's no, our heart's not aflame to do that anymore. You know why? There's a reason for that. And you know what? The reason for that is not the person sitting next to you. It's not your husband or your wife. It's not your boss on your job. It's not the currents of the day. It's you. It's me. I have to look in my heart. And look at what the Lord does. He says in Malachi chapter 1, verse number 2, here's the first thing that happens when a person's heart is getting cold and slipping towards hypocrisy. It's this. Look at it says in verse number one. Excuse me, verse number two. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have, I, how, how have you loved us? Was not a, Esau's Jacob, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. In other words, this is what the Lord is saying here, that the first thing that happens when a person is slipping to, toward a numbness and a hypocrisy is they begin to question the love of God. Lord, I, I don't think you love me. Look what happened here in my life. Look what happened there in my life. And you begin to question God's love. And that's a sure sign that you're not heading in the right direction. It's a sure sign for these people. 
It's a sure sign when John the Baptist preached and when the Lord preached and when any preacher preaches that these things have to come to light. Are you questioning the love of God? Are you doubting the love of God? Are you doubting what the Lord has done and is doing and will do in your life? Or have you given it up to say, I, I tried that. And I concluded that I don't think God loves me. He may love that person and this person, but not me. It may be because you don't love yourself. Well, that doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is God does love us. All right? Because he says directly to the people, I love you. And, but see, this is what they say. How have you loved us? They can't even come up with one reason how God loves them. On all the stuff that went on in the Old Testament and all the Lord has given them, the law, the nation, chose, he didn't chose any people, he chose Israel, right? He didn't cho- choose the other nations. He didn't deliver the other nations by the hand of Moses. He didn't do the great things that he's done with the people in the sacrificial system and knowing how to approach God and have your sins covered for a year and, and have, know how to have a right relation with God. He didn't do that with everybody. He did with Israel and Israel saying, you know what, I can't keep up, I can't come up with one reason how you love us. That's, that's bad. That's not good. That's bad. All right? It just shows something's going wrong in their heart. Secondly, verse number six. All right? Now, this one's directed more at the priests. All right? But just think of this for a minute. If believers are, we are the priesthood of believers, then in some respects, this this, this is applied to the church uh, in this way that we're all priests. We're all people that minister on behalf of God. But if you notice what it says in verse 6, it says this. God said to them in verse 6, O priest, you despise my name. Well, let me read the whole verse. It says, in verse number six, it says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests, you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? How have we done that? All right? So the, the second thing that happens where when our, our, our hearts are, are slipping towards coldness and numbness and hypocrisy is that we begin to ignore God. And how do we ignore him? We become sloppy in our Christian lives. We become negligent to the things that we should be doing. We don't give it the same effort as we would do something we really like to do. See, God's not priority. He's somewhere on our list, but he's not. So the thing is, is that if, if God's not priority, then I don't give him my all. See, they begin to ignore the name of God or show contempt to God's name. Now, how do they do that? Verse number seven, it says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. See, they were definitely not, they knew, the priest should have known that you don't come with a, just a sloppy sacrifice. It has to be a perfect, unblemished land. It's, I mean, it's very clear. In the old, so they became very sloppy in how they worship God. It wasn't that important. And that's what hypocrisy, hypocrisy usually produces. It doesn't produce somebody who's excellent in living the Christian life or pursuing godliness or aflamed in their heart. It just produces a ho-hum, this is what we always do attitude. And that stinks. That stinks before God. And then where does it lead to ultimately? Look at verse 13 of Malachi chapter 1. It says, and you say, you, you also say, my, how tiresome it is and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery 
and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name feared among the nations. It's when God is no longer served as a great king. See, that's what it means to ignore God's name, to show contempt to God's name, to despise God's name. And can that happen to us? Yes, it does happen to us. This, this, this message of Malachi is for everyone. It's for pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and evangelists and parents and everyone who calls the, on the name of the Lord. And it must be preaching that reveals this whole thing of uh, hypocrisy. In verse number 13, they, they were tired of hearing from God. Tired of hearing God's word. Here's the third thing. He's not done. In verse number, chapter 2, in verse number 14, excuse me, verse number 10, 210 of Malachi It says, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do you deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Right there, the Lord laying down the whole thing about, here's the third thing, what happens when the heart grows cold is we we begin to break faith with one another and with God. It's called, it's called divorce in this scripture. He starts out saying, listen, you were, you made a co- I made a covenant with you, with your fathers, right? If you break that covenant, then you are divorcing me. And God says, I hate divorce. I hate unfaithfulness. And of course, that's when the passage comes up because you know what, as soon as we start acting unfaithful to God, we start acting unfaithful to each other. And when you start acting unfaithful, you know what happens? This is what happens in marriage. You start looking around. You start looking somewhere else to fulfill whatever you think you're missing. That's what happens. Unfaithfulness produces a desire to look somewhere else to be filled up. And that's why if you look down in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, that's why it says this, and you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and the wife of by covenant, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrongs, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. And of course, that, that's the most closest, most intimate relationship that we can have. And the Lord says that relationship is reflective of the relationship you have with me, the great king. And so therefore, as soon as you start dealing unfaithfully with me, you start dealing unfaithfully with people and with those closest to you. So see, hypocrisy breeds breaking faith with others. Now, all these things could be present, or maybe one could be present in our heart at any one time, or maybe all of them can be present. But see, marriage will become, to the hypocrite, routine, and then when it becomes routine, when it's just going through the motions, then you'll start looking around. All right, that's not it. Number four. God says to them, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, again, 
It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? All right, again, number four is the fourth thing that shows up in a cold heart is complaining that you're less blessed than the wicked. Look what it says in verse number 17. How have you wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them? Or where is the God of justice? So you begin to complain that you are less blessed than even the wicked. I look at my wicked neighbor, and they have way more than me. They look way happier than I do, and they seem more prosperous than me. You know, Lord, what's going on here, you know? Can't do that. Can't look there. See, that's, that's a sign of hypocrisy. That's a sign of growing cold in your heart towards the Lord. Number five, let me move on. It says in verse number eight, Verse number eight, that, uh, and of course, number five would be simply this, that uh, the fifth thing that your heart is getting cold is that you stop uh, being generous and cheerful in your giving. It says in Malachi 3, 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. See, one thing about hypocrisy there is that it doesn't seem to be contained in one place. Soon as hypocrisy hits a group of people, it goes through the whole group of people. The whole nation, it says there, of you. See, your, your, your pocketbook gets real tight when you're a hypocrite. When you're leaning towards hypocrisy, you don't see the need anymore to be generous and cheerful in your giving. And then maybe the deadliest of them all, number six, would be chapter three, verse number 13, the deadliest of them all. It says this in verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Right, what, what the sixth one is this, the arrogant words are simply that the people come to this conclusion. It's not worth it to serve God. That's, that's their conclusion. That's, that is the arrogant words against God. It's not worth it. Look at verse 14 and 15. This is where it comes clearer. It says, you have says it is in vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers, not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. See, they're looking at the wicked and they're saying, listen, the wicked seem to get out of it, but we seem to be responsible and we don't seem to get out of it. And so what they do is they begin to, all these things come up and see but the the key to all this is that outwardly everything seems in order but inwardly things are not right and only god can expose it only the word of god can get down into the recesses in our heart and expose what's going on there see the lord through the prophet gets to the heart of the matter and expo exposes hypocrisy outward form and inward numbness the people have a deep spiritual heart problem and their response when the prophet confronts them is this we don't know what you're talking about we don't see any of that that's a deadly place to be and that's the last word of the prophets that's why john the baptist preached oh you hypocrites that's why jesus preached oh you Hypocrites, you look at the outside of the vessel and you think everything's fine. I'm looking in the inside and you're full of dead men's bones. See, that's where God looks. He looks in the heart. See, so 
we need to be rescued from hypocrisy. All of us do. From time to time, we all have a tendency to slip in this, you know, move this way. You know why? We should hate that kind of movement. And the, the only way to prevent that is to always be looking and examining your heart as to where you stand with God. What's really going on there? What are you really thinking about? What, what really gives you passion to do things? Is it all about you or is it about the glory of God? Is it about serving the great king? Is it about the future that the Lord promises us? See, we, we cannot lose our spiritual discernment. There's always a large amount of danger by just saying words, by just worshiping and going through the motions, by just going uh, and doing what we just think is the right thing to do. Now, those things are not wrong. We ought to be doing them, but we have to do them with our heart. We have to be all there when we serve God. We have to be all there when we serve God. In the Gospels, you have John the Baptist picking up where the prophet Malachi left off. God is speaking through the prophet again. And the time was right for awakening and revival. And John laid the foundation to identify Christ as the Lamb of God and point his disciples to the followers of Christ. That's why when you look at the apostles, none of them are scholars. None of them come from religious schools. They're just plain old people who have plain old jobs and were fishermen, but there's one thing they knew they didn't have, a relationship with God. And when Christ came and Christ inflamed their heart and saved them and genuine conversion came in, then everything exploded and the apostles turned the world upside down, it says in the book of Acts, because people were genuinely being converted to God and they now had a relationship with God they never knew they could have before. So, listen, we must conclude that it is, it is worth it to serve God with your whole heart. It is worth it. So likewise, Theodore Frelinghuysen, the spiritual atmosphere in which the Lord sent him to minister in this very valley, this Raritan Valley, in this new world called America, was an extremely needy place spiritually. They lacked trained ministers. Uh, that was becoming an increasing problem. There was no place to train ministers. Um, matter of fact, it was being reported back in Holland on a fairly regular basis that in the middle colonies, especially among the Dutch congregations, they were in need of ministers immediately, big letters, and there was an entry found in what they call the Ecclesiastical Record of New York uh, concerning the ministers, and it said this, uh, I am credibly informed that in many of the towns there, uh, there are no ministers at all, and in the Jerseys, particularly, there are at least seven towns that have no public worship of God at all. It, and they say that probably one of these reports uh, finally caused Frelinghuysen uh, in 1719 uh, 17, uh, to leave a very promising and comfortable career in Holland for an unexpected future in New Jersey. Uh, however, Frelinghuysen concluded that America offered more opportunity to pr pursue an independent career. What he meant by that is that he was kind of sick of the informal, the, the formal hypocrisy and uh, stuff that was going on where he was at in Holland and wanted to get out and do something new. And uh, he thought that this was a great opportunity. Virgin territory for the gospel. New people with many problems that need uh, a minister to preach to them. And so he came, Frelinghuysen would settle in uh, a newly founded pioneer work in Raritan Valley, New Jersey, in which the Dutch settlers called him to be their pastor in 1720. Actually, he was being called to four small Dutch Reformed congregations in New Jersey, Raritan, uh, Six Mile Run, Three Mile Run, and North Branch. 
they're right around us. We're smack right in the middle. As a matter of fact, this is a Dutch Reformed building. Do you know that, right? This building is a Dutch Reformed building. And there was uh, many Dutch Reformed pastors who preached the gospel here in this church. Um, and um, so the gospel has been being preached here since 1855. I think Lincoln was the president then. Lincoln. And so, so it's been a long time. But anyway, Frelinghuysen was convicted by Psalm 15.4, uh, where he said that God honored them that fear the Lord, and he that swear to his own hurt and changes not. I don't know how that convicted him, but it did. And I, I haven't read exactly how he un- interpreted that particular thing. But he just realized that, listen, uh, something needed to be done. He wanted to go. He had the kind of the missionary spirit. So very quickly... Uh, he came to New Jersey, and he found in the New World, uh, f- the physical conditions were very harsh. Um, he realized that uh, religion was not of great importance to the Dutch Reformed pastors. Uh, they were more attracted to rich soil and improving their economic condition than in pr- pursuing spiritual growth. And in fact... Uh, the spirit of religious indifference, hypocrisy hovered over the colonists, even though there was no lack of religious formalism. And the young people especially seemed to succumb to apathy more than, and hypocrisy more than others. Uh, and Frelinghuysen also labored uh, with a resentment towards formal religion, and he wanted to break away from a mere emphasis on superficial piety and outward performance of religious duties and he wanted to get to the heart of the matter remember forerunners changed the hearts of people toward god move it toward god that's what he wanted to do that's why he was called that so he favored the evidence of real conversions uh and he depended on people to have actually personal experience with christ in those conversions and he wanted to give his people a sense of true piety and Vital, uh, vital religious experience, and he wanted to make sure that they understood the gospel and that they had a, undergone a personal conversion and were truly regenerate with proof. Uh, fruits of repentance. So even though the Dutch Reformed Church had retained the doctrines of the Refor- Reforma- Reformation, uh, and had to, uh, but they had to a great measure lost the power and the spirituality that accompanied uh, the, uh, I, you know, the great religious movement uh, of that day. So, in a sense, this forerunner, Theodore Frelinghuysen, wanted to bring his hearers back to the religion of the heart. And so, John the Baptist and Theodore Frelinghuysen preached to awakened sinners and formal professors from their lethargic spiritual stupor an often unconverted state to a new state of real regeneration and conversion to Christ in which they will, their heart was inflamed to serve God anew. Uh, and that's what the end result of revival was. And so, remember, when the heart grows cold, revival is needed. So, you know what? Let's pray. Let's pray that revival starts with us, with you. Let's, let's pray revival starts with us. And let's always be concerned about what's going on in our heart, especially as it has to do with our relationship with the Lord. Amen? We need, we need to always be examining that. So the Lord's table is the perfect place to start it, is to be looking at our heart and uh, to be examining ourselves honestly pointing out the sins that we see, and if you can't see any, you ask the Lord to search and try you and show you your sin and then confess it and then put off that sin. But remember, that's not it. Then you've got to put on righteousness. You can't leave a vacuum there. You have to put on the righteous behavior and conduct that pleases the Lord, and then you don't go back that way again. You put that sin to death forever and finally. So, as we prepare prepare for the Lord's table, I do want to mention that the Lord's table is for and only for 
uh, believers. I'm going to pick this message up uh, next week again and look at really the second thing that was evident in the preaching. Uh, but this morning, as we can think of the Lord's table, remember, we, why do we partake of the Lord's table? It is definitely a command, and, um, and commands are good uh, and are given to us by the Lord. But remember, remember, commands have to be followed because we want to do it, not because we have to do it, all right? And it does show the Lord's table that we definitely have a true interest in Christ. It, it really declares our interest in the Lord. The two elements, the, the bread representing the enfleshment of the Lord. He came into this world. He, he had to become a man and die in the place of sinners. All right? So that's, we can never forget that. And then he had to shed his blood so he could wash away our sin. Those are the, the key uh, points of the gospel. can never lose that. That's why the Lord gave us this ordinance so we don't forget that. All right, and so, and only Christ's followers, remember, are followers who examine themselves. They then confess their sins. They discern um, uh, their, what's going on inside of them. And then they are people who declare the goodness of God. They are people who are thankful for what God's doing in their life. They are people who are joy-filled uh, because of the great things God has done, is doing, and they are glory-bound. And that's all part of our joy. And so it declares really our standing in God's family. It declares our belief in the new covenant. It declares our belief in the physical death and resurrection of Christ. It declares our belief in that Jesus Christ is coming again. He is our great hope. See, that's what the Lord table does. It, it brings us back to wherever we wandered off to. It brings us back uh, into focus. And so we should think of it like that. All right, so why don't we take some time, examine ourselves, and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. The men who are serving, if you'd come forward, uh, that would be great. And I'd just like to say something uh, as we leave today. Please, when you leave today, take everything from your pew today, all the bulletins, all your stuff. Uh, uh, Christian Fellowship Church is going to come in here. They're going to use our church for a baptism. So just bring... Set up everything, all the hymnals, the Bibles in front of you the way it was when you came. And just take everything with you when you leave to the back uh, this, this uh, morning, all right? So we don't have to do that. So let's, uh, let's take a few minutes and examine ourselves and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table.